0: Welcome to this second series of Hay Festival podcasts, which is going to explore individual themes or subjects with samples from our extensive online archive. We're going to start with global health, pointedly, as we are in the midst of, or rather at the end of the beginning of, the COVID 19 pandemic crisis. Let's hear first for some historical context from Mary Dobson, formerly the director of the Welcome Unit of. History of Medicine at the University of Oxford and the author of Murderous Contagion, A Human History of Disease and The Story of Medicine from Bloodletting to Biotechnology. Let her take us back to the mid-1300s.
1: Plagues have had a major impact over the millennia um, in every sense. Perhaps the most famous of all the plagues of the past is the Black Death which struck Europe in the mid-14th century. It spread from Asia, along land and maritime trade routes, and had the most devastating consequences. We now think that somewhere around 50 million people died in the few years as the Black Death raged, and that's probably a third of the population of Europe. It was a terrible calamity, with deep, profound social, demographic and economic impacts. So, what was the Black Death? Also known as bubonic plague, from the buboes that appeared under the armpits or in the groin, it was a mystery to everyone at the time. Some thought it was sent by God for the sins of humanity, to punish men and women. Others thought it was spread by miasmas or foul smells. Some believed in contagious particles and quarantine from the Italian for 40 days was introduced by the Italians, um, and then later taken up by other countries, to try and prevent the spread of plague. But very, very little helped. In fact, bubonic plague continued to ravage countries over the following centuries. Although mysteriously, for reasons still not fully understood, after about the early 18th century, Europe, Western Europe, was mostly free from the plague. It persisted in other parts of the world. And by the late 19th century, when an epidemic was raging in Hong Kong, scientists finally discovered the cause of plague. It was a bacterium, which became known as Yersinia pestis. Shortly after the discovery of this bacterium, they worked out that it was spread by rats, via fleas to humans. The rats themselves dying of plague, their fleas infected jumped onto humans who then became infected too.
0: So from 50 million dead in Europe and 500 years of the Black Death ravaging the world, we're going to move now to a contemporary setting and to hear from the co-authors of Governing Global Health Who Runs the World and Why about the four institutions that the world has gathered together to try and address these huge global international cooperation issues. They are Devi Sridhar, Professor of Public and Global Health at the University of Edinburgh, and Chelsea Clinton, Vice-Chair of the Clinton Foundation who teaches at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health. I should say that this conversation took place on the 2nd of June 2018 and may seem prophetic
2: we We did kind of uh, set out to determine kind of who runs the world and why. Um, and and to look at the four major institutions um, at a global level as it relates to health governance. I do think it's important though, to note that you know so often um, global health is thought of as what happens to other people in other places instead of kind of what actually affects <coughs> kind of our sense of of global solidarity or our global health. And so often global health is thought of as just. Kind of the transfer of, of resources to um, developing countries from donor countries. Um, but if we're actually kind of focused on the conventional definition of global health of like what's happening in developing countries, um, the vast majority of resources going to improve health in developing countries come from the developing countries themselves. Mm. Um, but kind of looking at the global perspective as well as looking kind of at it from a donor perspective, you know, there are kind of four institutions that really. Um, predominantly kind of influence who runs the world and why from our core question. Um, The World Health Organization, uh, the World Bank, uh, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and Malaria, and Gavi, which uh, used to be known as the Vaccine Alliance that was constructed to try to close the immunization gap. So the gap between um, the vaccines that Debbie and my children have received um, and the vaccines that often children in poor countries do not receive. And so we group those into kind of the older institutions, um, both of which are now more than 70 years old, the uh, World Bank and the World Health Organization, and then the newer institutions, both of which are less than two decades old, um, the Global Fund and Gavi. And maybe Debbie can talk a little bit about kind of how we look at them and compare them.
3: Yeah, and I guess, um just to take a step back, you might be thinking it's a funny thing to look at cooperation and health yeah. at this moment in time. I think if you look at what's happening across the world, not just the America First movement and Brexit yeah. in the UK, which is UK first. It's also you know, Russia first, China first, India first. This is kind of what you're hearing. So I think part of what we try to build the case, as Chelsea's saying in the book, is actually why, why do states cooperate? Like why does the US need to go in an institution and in a partnership with Papua New Guinea? why does the UK have to sit at the same table as Malawi? And it's to convince these leaders that actually our biggest health challenges are interconnected. Mm-hmm. And these range from you know, pandemic preparedness, we now have an outbreak in the DRC of Ebola that seems to be so far well handled, we have a vaccine, but it's also things like drug resistant infections you know, in the UK, there's been a big push among GPs not to overprescribe antibiotics. Probably all of you here in the UK hear that when you go to your GP, they don't want to give you antibiotics. But if actually the largest threat, if we use the word, the UK population is someone in China who's been infected from an animal that's received antibiotics to improve its growth, is transferred to the farmer, which is transferred to community, and gets on a plane to the UK, what good is it for the UK just to be worried about what's happening here? It's about those interconnections across the world. So I think it's the underpinning of why governance matters that actually our world is interconnected, and if you wanna solve these problems, you can't do it on a go it alone approach. And that's for a range of issues and it's also what they call the commercial drivers, (coughs) tobacco, (coughs) alcohol, food, these are beyond one country. And so the book we look at, how actually can you do that? So if I'm sitting in a country and I wanna solve this and I want to get countries around the table to cooperate, you can either do it through the WHO, the World Health Organization or the World Bank, but actually, countries were frustrated with the United Nations. You probably constantly hear about UN reform. They feel like it's bureaucratic, that they're putting money down you know, into, into, corrupt, into corrupt regimes. They can read about newspaper stories about aid and where it's getting lost. And so out of this frustration, the Global Fund and Gavi were born. Global Fund to channel, does three things, actually. It raises money, it spends it, and it proves that it spent it in a good way. Hugely successful, and it's the biggest channel for health for three diseases, AIDS, TB, malaria. And the other thing is actually Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, which was set up to actually say, can we work with like, vaccine manufacturers? Can we see private sector as a partner to say, if we provide a higher volume market, will you bring your prices down? If we guarantee that we will acquire those, will you actually you know, manufacture them and actually do the R&D to work towards the next Ebola vaccine, or now we're having a Nipah Valley Nebo virus outbreak in India. So I think it's a, we, we try to make the case for it and look at how you do it and why governments might choose different ways. Because once you say you want to work together, you have to figure out how. <laughs> and, and these are different models of how you can do it. And they're lessons of when they work well and when they don't work so well.
0: Jeremy Farrar is the director of the Wellcome Trust, based in London, but operating obviously all around the world. In his 2016 session in Hay in Wales, he talked about the urgency and robustness of political intervention when facing emergency pandemic crises. Here he is describing just some of the range of viruses and diseases that the global health community knew it was facing just four years ago, before COVID-19 had even been heard of. Today,
4: whatever date today is, 27th or 28th of May, or whatever it is. And this is not an exhaustive search. This is just what I know is going on at the moment in terms of emerging infections. There's a nasty SARS-like virus circulating in the Middle East, has been doing for the last three years. Probably you catch it from camels, but there is human-to-human transmission. And after a single import from Saudi Arabia to Korea, almost 200 people got infected. There is influenza, the one infectious disease we all worry about that could cause a true global pandemic, which would be horrendous. There is drug-resistant malaria coming. There are enteroviruses like polio circulating in Asia. There's hepatitis E. There are major cholera outbreaks. The one that I most worry about, including Zika, there is a huge outbreak at the moment in Angola of yellow fever. Yellow fever is transmitted. It's a viral infection transmitted by that same mosquito that transmits Zika and it's never been reported in Asia, but with those increased trade routes between Asia and sub Saharan Africa, it's inevitable, I think, that yellow fever, which is a truly horrible infection, will spread to Asia. So we live on this cusp of this frightening, often really frightening, uh, situation where we have these epidemics that could potentially come to something very nasty. And there are hundreds of these, thousands of these. I've just picked nine there before, which I know about. Uh, But actually, every week, there are these dots of red. Each dot of red there is somebody somewhere is reporting an outbreak of something. Now, 99.9% of those will turn out to be nothing. But how do you create a system which picks up and delineates between those that we do need to worry about and those that we don't need to worry about? If, If I was giving this talk three years ago, I would not have had Ebola on my list as causing a horrendous epidemic, because I was looking backwards in history and saying it never has done, so it won't in the future. Zika virus was first described in 1947 in Uganda. It it would not have been on my list for causing a nasty outbreak, and yet 60 countries in South America are now suffering because of Zika, and the impact on society as those babies grow into childhood and into adulthood is going to be much more severe even than we are currently anticipating. But we struggle because we cannot, we cannot, at the moment, smartly do this to distinguish this red dot, which is irrelevant, from that yellow dot, which is yellow fever. And at the, we can distinguish what the infections are, but we're not yet set up as a globe, as a world, as a, as a, as a global organis- set of global organisations, to be able to deal with this in the time frame that's appropriate. And that time frame is very, very short. The image here on the left for you is the thing that keeps epidemiologists and infectious disease people awake at night. This was the influenza pandemic of 1918. And this is excess deaths in London, Paris, Berlin, and New York in November 1918. Remember that the First World War, which we've recently commemorated the 100 years, Far, far more people died of influenza in 1918 than died throughout the First World War. About 40 million people at a time when the world's population was two billion. The world's population is now seven billion. We can travel, as I said earlier, we can move much more quickly. And so an influenza pandemic really could cause that sort of event. But the thing that's always struck me since, since first seeing this graph, this is October the 18th, 1918. This is mortality along here in four cities. The remarkable thing to me is how quickly that goes up and how quickly it comes down. From that point to that point is six weeks. So, in one city, it was in one centre, it wasn't, this is not, the, the epidemic went on for many months, but in the first place that it happened, where it was first reported, it happened very, very quickly. It went away and then it came, came back in a series of, of waves. This is Mexico in 2009. Now many people in retrospect have said that Mexico 2009, we we overreacted to the the pandemic of 2009. I was in Mexico at the start of that epidemic in April of 2009. And at that point, in a square kilometer of Mexico City, there are four hospitals. And in those four hospitals, the hospitals were absolutely full of mostly young people mostly on ventilators in a very serious state. You had to make a decision in May of 2009, is this going to be nasty or is this not going to be nasty? Because your interventions are going to take six months to create. To make a vaccine for influenza takes six to 12 months. So in May 2009, at the start of the epidemic, which many people in retrospect have said we, I, overreacted to, those hospitals were absolutely full. And you have to make your decisions based on very imperfect data but if you look at the timeline of this epidemic in those four hospitals in Mexico that period of time from there where it goes up to there where it comes down was 42 days it's a very very short time window if you go back to Ebola uh, the first that child that's been reported you probably read about that that probably interacted somehow with a bat in December 2013 that first epidemic in that first village lasted about six weeks and then people realized what was happening and people spread out to other parts of West Africa and the epidemic took off. If you don't intervene early, and if you don't intervene robustly, and if you don't put your neck on the line to say, we've got to act, then you'll miss the opportunity. The epidemic will grow, the epidemic will spread, and it'll be infinitely harder, if not impossible, to turn it back again. So one of the great challenges we had, and I mentioned it at the the start, is that leadership that's brave enough to say something is going wrong and in December, in January, in February, in March of 2014 we failed as a community, all of us, we failed as a community to make that call and I think it's because we were too timid and we didn't want to rock the boat and actually the world is just going to have to get used to us calling those things we will get it wrong sometimes but it's better to get it wrong once or twice than get it wrong and it goes badly wrong.
0: Thomas Boyke is Senior Fellow for Global Health at the independent American body, the Council on Foreign Relations. He came to Hay in 2019 to talk about his book, Plagues and the Paradox of Progress, Why the World is Getting Healthier in Worrisome Ways. We'll come back to COVID-19 in a minute, but firstly, I just want to focused the idea that global health is not just about pandemics and emergency crises. There are chronic health problems, which are often the result of demographic changes, economic and social shifts that have been operating across the world for hundreds of years, but are coming to a real crisis now.
5: Now, as an example of what the consequences of that, I'm going to use DACA. DACA, for those of you that have not been or visited, is a country of 16 million people and the size of a, a mid-sized city. Greensboro, North Carolina, in my country, would be a good example. Uh, it's the most densely populated place on Earth. Uh, so, Dhaka, between, until 2016, didn't have a freeway. It, uh, the average speed of traffic in Dhaka is just six kilometers per hour, a little faster than walking. Each day, every day, the residents of Dhaka lose 3.2 million working hours to congestion. And when you have that level of congestion, it makes it harder to trade ideas. It makes it harder to start businesses. It makes it harder to gain the benefits of common urban infrastructure like roads or bridges, agglomeration for those of you that have an, an economics background. Which means cities like Dhaka may be anonymous, not just in that they're the, the first large. Uh, poor cities in world history, they may be the first large or the first cities to make their residents poorer instead of wealthier. Last byproduct to talk about, shifts in health needs. Now, most of us that work in global health, you think about the limitation of health systems. When facing a, a global health challenge, you think about West Africa and, and the, the Ebola outbreak there. And these are countries that were doing pretty well in many areas of global health, but when faced with an unexpected challenge, even though you know Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea had also, like Niger, added much to their life expectancy, had much higher rates of immunization, like measles, when faced with an unexpected disease that ultimately we treat with just hydration, IB, I, IB use and uh, supportive care, Uh, really collapse the health systems in those environments. And we think of these emerging infectious disease outbreaks as the the perils uh, and exposing the limitation of health systems in low- and middle-income countries. But frankly, it's really the day-to-day toll of everyday diseases, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, chronic respiratory illnesses like asthma, where you really see the dramatic increase. So, to use Bangladesh just as an example again, Bangladesh from 1990 to uh, 20, uh, uh, 2040, so over a 50-year time period, will go from having just 28% of its overall health needs, be these non commutable diseases like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and the like, they will go to it having 82%, which is the same as it is here in the UK. It's the same as it is in the United States, except Bangladesh will do that in 50 years instead of 200 years. And they'll do that significantly poorer and with a much more limited health system. They're also significantly less prepared. Just to take from this figure is that the up and down is how prepared a country is, the right to left is, uh, is uh, I'm sorry, the right to left is how prepared, the up and down is how big of an increase they will have in these chronic diseases. And what you see is the same countries in that upper right that'll have the largest increase in these diseases are also the least prepared for them. Of course, when you have a rising young adult population, it also means you are more subject to be targeted by the industries that sell to young adults, and that's certainly true for Sub-Saharan Africa, where they're increasingly the target of the tobacco industry and fast food industry and that's going to contribute to this challenge as well. So what do I want you to take from this? Are global health investments a big mistake? Uh, Should we turn back and stop investing in trying to address the the plagues of poverty? Uh, No, it's not that global health isn't important. It's that global health is much more important than people realize. It shapes the fortunes of national economies, the global geography of cities, and explains the international movement of people. It is important, it's more important than people think, and we should invest more in it. The battle between humans, humankind and microbe is not over. There's no worthier goal to address than trying to reduce child suffering. But we must realize that when you save the lives of children, that those children grow to be adults. And the ways we invest in trying to address their needs have to take into account the kinds of investments that can allow adults to succeed and have a healthy and productive life. The good news is that's possible. What we're seeing now is the anomaly. For most of history, remember, these health improvements have led to durable prosperity, sustainable, inclusive prosperity. And you see countries making these kinds of investments that can allow young adults to succeed. Vietnam in 2010 was a poor, a low-income country. They have now testing rates for their 15-year-olds that are the envy of my country. Senegal and Kenya have managed to dramatically reduce their fertility rates with voluntary family planning programs that allow women to have just the children that they want to uh, through promotion of contraception and its use. You're starting to see innovative programs designed to address these chronic diseases in low-resource settings. And this is a program funded by the Rockefeller Foundation working in partnership with governments to try to use lower-skilled workforces to more uh, early-diagnosed populations. And the message that I hope you draw from this is that what we're seeing now is often referred to as the age of miracles in global health. And it is, we've achieved remarkable progress. But the real miracles in global health will occur when the people that are benefiting from better health can seize the same opportunities uh, that, for prosperity that came with health improvements in the past.
0: Devi Sridhar returned to Hay in May 2020, just a couple of months ago. She was talking to Dan Davis, the professor of immunology from Manchester University, about COVID-19. And here she is specifically talking about what has happened to the rest of medical attention whilst we've been focusing on the pandemic crisis in the UK?
4: One of the things that I think this situation has um, raised is, is just very clearly, as you said, we need more, there needs to be more global interaction. But also, one of the things I picked up from reading your book was that when there's a very targeted um, when the when the global effort is targeted on one particular disease it might funnel you know too much attention or too much of resources in one particular area so i wondered what your what your sense of that is what where is that how do we going forward what are the perhaps the changes that that should happen in global health generally
3: yeah so Second part of your question is harder. I can talk about the first part, which is, yes, I mean, the thing you know about outbreaks is they're like black holes. I mean, they everything gets sucked into them. Expert time, research. I mean, think of all the research groups across the world, which are, re, you know, pivoting their work towards COVID now. Everyone's doing something related to it. Um, you know, money, like development assistance. I mean, even look at the UK in terms of how the NHS has been entirely oriented now towards one disease. And this was what we saw with Ebola in West Africa and so what some of the analysis showed is because of the disrupted disrupted vaccination schedules for measles and you know kids being out of school and women not being able to reach facilities to have um a midwife or someone there with them to help facilitate birth that you had a lot of deaths happening that had you could say nothing to do with Ebola you wouldn't count them as an Ebola death but they were happening because Ebola was a outbreak if that makes sense I mean UNICEF has called this the uncounted dead those who experience the outbreak and suffer from it, but are not counted if we say, okay, how many people died of that disease? And we're seeing this now, I think, across the world with this move to look at excess deaths, which is not how many people have died of COVID-19 itself, but what are the number of excess deaths at this time of year compared to the five previous years? Um, And what does that tell us about health services and how they become swamped? And I've struggled with this even as a researcher because um you know i'd rather work on issues that are neglected and that other people aren't looking at but whenever there is a outbreak of some kind and you have to work on that outbreak because it's all hands on deck because the faster we can get COVID under control the faster we can get back to those agendas that we've been trying to work on for ages um you know childhood pneumonia childhood diarrhea the thing, you know getting vaccine preventable diseases and and controlled these kind of issues and instead we're all consumed with this and the latest example is gates foundation which was a funder you know going after a lot of these issues like you know childhood pneumonia neglected tropical diseases dengue malaria and all of a sudden saying everything they're going to do is going to be focused on on COVID because they know that if you don't handle COVID, all these other agendas will be wiped out in low-income countries what can we do about it i mean i think the lesson is again with outbreaks the faster that you can stop them the earlier you can push them out i mean if every country had done what taiwan and new zealand and greece and South Korea had done, then this virus would be pushed to the margins. I think the longer this pandemic rages and it's just taking off, last week saw the biggest number of daily new cases, 106,000 across the world, um, the more damage it takes. It's like a fire, that's how you have to see outbreaks. And, and, And a fire, if you leave it, it's just gonna burn everything down. You have to keep putting out that fire.
0: Our final contribution in this global health podcast is from Professor Dame Sally Davis, Master of Trinity College, Cambridge, former UK chief medical officer, author of The Drugs Don't Work and government lead on antimicrobial resistance, which is the big thing that affects every other illness. It affects our livelihood, our food chain, everything about our global health. And it's here right now.
6: And while you might think that science and imagination Are the antithesis of the other and the former the fact and the latter fiction, I think they both work together and empower each other. As Magdalena said, we are in the middle of a tragic epidemic, COVID 19, that's killing people and for which, as yet, we have no vaccines and no real treatment toolkit. And did you know that most of the people who end up on ventilators develop bacterial infections? So they need life-saving antibiotics. So just imagine a world in which antibiotics don't work and we can't treat common infections. Imagine a hospital that can't treat cancer without risking the infection, which may not be treatable, which can't perform hip operations for fear of spreading infections. You can imagine it. It's horrible. But also, think about and imagine a farm that can't treat its sick animals and a supermarket with no meat supply, and countries with threatened food security. Yeah, not so hard to imagine. Particularly, as Gibson said, the future is here, but it's just happening somewhere else in the world. Now, try to imagine a world in which we continue to have antibiotics available for both humans and animals. And I bet you think that's a reality. In fact, generally, here in the UK and in the global north, the rich countries, it's what we experience because we choose to. But we can do more. And I want to tell you how the scientific evidence has a different hidden story of this escalating threat. Indeed, the World Health Organization published its 13 biggest health threats for the 2020s at the beginning of this year before Covid but one was a pandemic and one was bacterial resistance to treatment that is to antibiotics and we call that antimicrobial resistance or AMR and both are happening now. So let me try and explain to you what AMR is and how it happens. Antimicrobial resistance Is a naturally occurring change or a mutation to the genes DNA of an infective organism which we can call microbes and those microbes can be bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites and the gene change makes them resistant to treatment so when they encounter the treatment they proliferate, they multiply. These are the so-called superbugs. Even worse They divide and spread and actually can pass resistance from one bug to another bug all too easily. And it's quite clear from scientific studies that there's a good correlation between the more antibiotics humans use, the more resistant genes that emerge. That happens in bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, all of these infective organisms. In all microbes, the selection and proliferation of resistant microbes increase, leading to higher rates of difficult-to-treat and resistant infections. And AMR emerges and spreads beyond humans, actually across the whole planet, in fish farming, called aquaculture, in food chains, in the crops, in our animal husbandry, and in our water supplies, in many guises. And it's all interconnected. So why does AMR happen? I've highlighted this close relationship between use or abuse of antibiotics with resistance. But that makes for a really difficult life across much of the world. For instance, where antibiotics are available to buy in markets and over the counter, where people are too bo- poor to buy a whole course of it of uh, antibiotics and they buy one or two days supply. Indeed, they may not even have had professional advice, so that's what's needed and that's what should work. And even more horrifically, when the drugs they buy are counterfeit. All of this increases the variation and inappropriate use of antibiotics and means more resistance, more superbugs. Over the first decade of the 21st century, Antibiotic use was high in Southern Europe, the BRICS, Australia, USA, and some developing countries. Indeed, the five rapidly growing countries known as the BRICS had the greatest upsurge in antibiotic use over that decade from 2000 to 2010. By 19% in Russia, 37% in China, 66% in India, 68% in Brazil, rising to an increase over that decade of 219% in South Africa almost three quarters of the total increase in global consumption occurred in these bricks but actually that only accounted for about a third of the world's increasing population over that period and even with substantial increase in overall use Per capita consumption there in the BRICS is lower than in the United States. So a lot of this rise is about development and getting the right treatment to people who need it. But it's terribly important that we all mobilize to address this growing problem. Our evidence and our solutions can't be limited to just human health, but we have to remember animals, fish, crops too. And as global demand for animal protein grows, antibiotics are increasingly used to raise food-producing animals in intensive production, mostly as antibiotics are much cheaper than good hygiene and they promote growth, and they are used for that rather than to treat disease and illness. The result is an increasing prevalence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in livestock, poultry, and aquaculture with spillovers that impact on human health. After all, why do the USA chlorine wash their chickens? It's to get rid of the salmonella, the E. coli and Campylobacter, all nasty and some resistant on those chickens. Indeed, chickens and pigs consume most of the antibiotics used in food animals around the world, but they're also used in beef cattle in the United States, Brazil and other countries, but not in the European Union. Indeed, more antibiotics are used in poultry, swine and cattle to promote growth and prevent disease than are used by the entire human population.
0: Thank you for listening to this Hay Festival's podcast, supported by Bailey Gifford, Investment Managers. You can see Mary Dobson's Black Death Hay Level on YouTube, and you can find full versions of all the other contributions on the Hay Player element of our website, alongside eight thousand other festival events from across the world over the last 25 years. Next week, we'll be back, focusing on Shakespeare's great tragedy, Romeo and Juliet.